Greetings, soul sisters, spiritual brethren, and non-binary siblings. This is the Queer Ritual Podcast, a place to discuss healing, spiritual practices, guided meditations, and self-empowerment with a queer-minded focus. Allies are welcome, too. I'm your host, Ricky B. Malone. My pronouns are he, they. I'm a Reiki master, intuitive healer, and master esthetician based out of the East Coast of the U.S. My goal with this podcast is to empower others to discover their true selves and live the lives they truly want. That is Lao for hello, everyone. Literally translates to may you be comfortable or wishing you comfort, which I always like the sentiment of that. The reason I spoke Lao to begin this episode is I've just decided that I should talk about my family's immigration story. I haven't really gone too, too in-depth with it in the podcast so far. I've, I've given little tidbits here and there, but I, I want to just tell the story from start to finish in the way that makes sense to me. Now, this episode does not have a script at all. This is just going to be me speaking off the cuff. So let's go. My grandfather, Kamhu Busarat, uh, he was actually born in Hanoi. He had a Vietnamese dad and a Lao mom. He was orphaned at a young age and ended up moving to Laos. He was fluent in both languages, Lao and Vietnamese. And so he chose to change his name. Uh, I don't know what his birth name was, but I, I know that my great-grandfather's name was Lin Tran Duc. So Lin was the surname, L-I-E-N. And so my grandfather felt self-conscious about having a Vietnamese family name, so he chose to change his name to Busarat. That's, that's more of the Francified, the Francophone way of saying it is Busarat. Uh, Busalat is the, the Lao way of saying it. There are a lot of Lao and Cambodian names that end in Salat or Sarat. Uh, I don't know what that means. I got to look that up at some point. Anyway, every single person that has the family name Busarat or Busalat is married, or is not married, <laughs> is, is related to me. Uh, there's only a handful of people that have that family name and they're all blood related to me in some way. So my grandfather is a very self-made man, you know, orphaned at a young age worked up his way within the Lao army. Now that's the Royal Lao army, not the communist Lao army. He worked his way up to general. So he is general Kamhu Busarat. He was also the director of national intelligence for Laos, working underneath the king of Laos at the time. So, When the Vietnam War broke out in the neighboring country, Vietnam, my grandfather was in a unique position. He already worked in intelligence. The CIA was starting to pop up both in Laos and Vietnam. And there was the emerging Patet Lao, the communist group in Laos, the Viet Cong were the communist group in Vietnam. 
the Viet Cong inspired the Patet Lao. So they're both communist movements that were in two neighboring countries at the exact same time during the Vietnam War. As far as the U.S. was concerned, because they were specifically trying to curb the spread of communism in Southeast Asia, they viewed both groups as their enemy. Now, unfortunately, the United States never actually declared war against Laos, but they did have operations within Laos. And my grandfather used his uh, fluency in both those languages as a strength that allowed him to become a CIA informant during the Vietnam War. So when my grandfather was on assignment, he would leave my grandmother and my mom and my aunts and uncles for, you know, months at a time. And he would be hiding in the jungles within Laos and Vietnam and looking, he would look for the, uh, where the Viet Cong and Pa Tet Lao camps were. And then he was also looking where the POW camps were. A lot of American soldiers were captured during the Vietnam War and ended up in these POW camps. So my grandfather would report back to the Americans where he found those camps. Uh, I guess I should also mention, within Laos, at the same time as the Vietnam War, there is the Secret War. Uh, It's called the Secret War because it wasn't talked about very much in the United States at the time. But... Laos is the most bombed country in all of human history. It, I believe the bombing campaign started under Kennedy. It definitely went on under Nixon. Uh, because Southeast Asia is full of jungles, the Americans, when they were flying over, weren't really able to spot where insurgents were hiding. So in Vietnam, they used Agent Orange which was a defoliant, it would kill all of the vegetation in an area and clear the space so they could then see where people were hiding. Agent Orange has a bunch of other problems with it, uh, including causing birth defects, which continue to this day. There's still birth defects appearing in Vietnam because of Americans' use of Agent Orange in Vietnam. But then in Laos, they had a different strategy. They decided to just bomb the shit out of the countryside. So Laos to this day is still littered with bombs. It's called the UXO problem. That's unexploded ordnance. There are a significant number of those bombs that the U.S. dropped in Laos in the 1970s that never exploded. And so it is still a problem in Laos to this day that when people dig, sometimes they end up hitting an unexploded ordnance and it goes off. So it has maimed children, farmers, and construction workers in Laos for the past 50 years. So going back to the war, my grandfather was helping the Americans during the war, reporting back to the CIA where he was finding POW camps. So when the war ended and the U.S. lost the Vietnam War, and by extension the secret war, my grandfather immediately became a political target. My mom at the time was in boarding school. She went to Lycée de Ventien, which is... Lycée is a French school. Uh, Because Vietnam and Laos are former French colonies, uh, the upper-class P3 
people in those two countries at the time would go to French schooling systems. So my mother, as well as all of her siblings, uh, spoke French in addition to Lao. That was also really common in Vietnam as well. A lot of upper-class Vietnamese at the time spoke French because there were also French lycée in Vietnam as well. So when the war ended, my grandfather became a political target within Laos. And the Patet Lao knew this, and they also knew which school my mother was attending. So they came to the school specifically looking for her. And the French nuns at this school had to hide my mother in the basement. This happened when she was a teenager. Obviously, she survived the ordeal. She came back home. And so all of my uh, mom and her, my mom and all of her siblings returned to their house in the capital city, Vientiane, and they waited. My grandfather ended up getting a call in the middle of the night from the Russian ambassador to Laos, who told him, I have intel that the Patet Lao know that your family is all in the house and they are coming in the morning. So in the middle of the night, my grandfather woke up all of the kids, as well as my grandmother, and they fled to Thailand. And the ambassador from Russia was correct. The Patet Lao did seize the house in the morning and my grandfather had luckily snuck out in time. Then my grandfather wrote a cable to the CIA asking the United States government for emergency political asylum. This document is actually on WikiLeaks, if you care to look it up. I mean, just type in my grandfather's name, Kamhu Busarat, and it will show up as one of the Google results. I mean, use WikiLeaks at your discretion. I'm not going to endorse or not endorse that website. And the United States did grant my grandfather's request for emergency political asylum. So then my family flew from Thailand to Texas. My family ended up settling in Richardson, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas, Texas. It was unusual at the time for a Southeast Asian family to all move at once. It's way more common for Vietnamese and Lao families to have to wait at a refugee camp for months before being granted approval to come to the United States. And in addition to that, that those families needed a sponsor from the United States to bring them over. Now, because my grandfather got the emergency political asylum, we all skipped the line. My family all skipped the line. So they didn't have that same uh, immigration process that most Lao and Vietnamese American families did. They didn't come to the United States as refugees. They came as asylum seekers. And by extension, that also meant there wasn't as much paperwork, which unusually gave my family a chance to make up their own birth dates. Uh, I know my grandmother did it as well. I know my mom did it, and I know my grandmother did it. I couldn't tell you what their actual dates of birth are, although I'm pretty sure my grandmother didn't even know what her date of birth was. So this entire family of 10, my grandfather, my grandmother, and eight kids moved to Richardson, Texas in 1975. 
there were not other Southeast Asian families in Richardson, Texas at the time. There eventually were. Uh, Because my grandfather showed up earlier than everybody else, he was able to build connections locally to get more sponsors to bring more people over. So there were some people in my extended family that came over that way. And then just other uh, friends that my family had in Laos that were able to be brought to the United States that way through my grandfather's father's connections in Texas. He was able to bring a lot of Lao families to the Dallas-Fort Worth area. The, uh, the three main hubs at the time for Lao refugee families to find sponsorships in the United States were the Twin Cities in Minnesota, St. Paul and Minneapolis, and then the Dallas-Fort Worth area in Texas, and then also Little Rock, Arkansas. And then a little bit later on in the 80s, a lot more uh, families were able to find sponsors in California. So most Lao Americans live in one of those four states, California, Minnesota, Texas, or Arkansas. Obviously, there's a lot more of a spread out out now. You know, I live in Virginia now, so I'm part of that spread too. Now, my family coming to the United States as asylum seekers did have some unfortunate consequences. They did not have as much help acclimating to the United States as a refugee family would. They didn't have a sponsor. None of them spoke English at the time. They all had to learn English and the American way of life all at once. And my family doesn't like to talk about this time period when they first arrived, but I know they struggled. Ten people in one household is a lot. That's a lot of mouths to feed. That's a lot of people trying to learn English at the same time. It's a lot to juggle trying to find work or school for ten people at once. My mother ended up doing her senior year of high school in Texas. And that's how she learned English, was going to a public school in Richardson, Texas. And when she graduated high school, she then, as the oldest sister out of the eight siblings, my grandparents made her work. So my grandmother started a tailoring business, and my grandfather started a janitorial business. It was very humbling for my family to go from such wealth in Laos to such abject poverty in the United States. And I ultimately know that's why my family doesn't like to talk about this time period. So this would have been, you know, 1975 to 1980, 1982. In that time frame, that's that's when my family really struggled. My grandfather's janitorial business ended up securing a contract to clean all of the Arby's restaurants in the Dallas area. Uh, Nowadays, fast food places don't have janitorial companies that come in and clean the stores overnight. Now they just have the minimum wage employees at at the restaurants clean the stores as part of their closing processes. But at the time, in the late 70s, early 80s, they would pay other companies to come in and do it in the middle of the night. So... My grandfather's janitorial business ended up securing the contract to clean all of the Arby's roast beef restaurants in the Dallas area. Eventually, they did lose that contract. I don't know exactly what my grandfather did after that point, but I do know my mom went to college. She went to the University of Texas at Dallas, UTD, 
And that's where she met my dad. So my mom and my dad met in the early 1980s. They were married by, I believe, 1982 or 1983. I could look that up, but it's it's fine. I'm just speaking off the cuff today. And my sister was born in 86. I was born in 88. My uh, dad went to medical school after graduating from college at UTD. So then he went to UT Southwestern Medical School. And then uh, because of that, my dad did end up having to move a little bit. So my sister and I were born in the Houston, Texas area. Uh, my dad ended up leaving my mom around a year after I was born. So I was born in 88 and he was gone by the end of 89. And my mom ended up having to move uh, back north to the Dallas-Fort Worth area as part of that process. So my earliest memories of my home life are uh, my mother going to medical school while my sister and I were being babysat by our grandmother. This was in Las Colinas, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas. It's close to Irving, Texas. That's my earliest memories. Well, it's not my very earliest memory, but it is my earliest memories of a consistent home life, is having my mom and my grandma. My grandfather didn't live too far away. He was in Garland, Texas. And eventually... My mom did have to drop out of medical school, juggling two kids as a single mother. It was too much. She couldn't keep her grades up. She ended up dropping out. And that's when we moved to Fort Worth, Texas, which is usually where I say I'm from. I lived in Fort Worth, Texas from, what is it, 1991 until 2007. So, yeah, that's my hometown. The reason I'm telling this story like, yeah, there's some sadness in it, obviously. My family did not have the rags-to-riches story you expect in the United States. They ended up having a riches-to-rags story. I guess another detail I should mention. In the early 90s, my grandfather wanted to start a political career in the United States. And he... he uh, sold all of the uh, assets in my grandmother's sewing business to host a fundraiser at a hotel ballroom. I believe it was the Dallas Hilton. Don't hold me to that. But anyway, yeah, so he, he gutted my grandmother's sewing business, sold all of the sewing machines except for one. She got to keep one sewing machine out of this ordeal and rented a hotel ballroom and invited a bunch of uh, bigwigs in the Texas State Republican Party and hosted a fundraiser for him to launch his political career. After he gave his whole presentation, I don't know exactly who, one of the people present pulled my grandfather aside and just said to him, there's no place for a man named Kamhu Busarat in the Republican Party right now. I am pretty sure that happened in 1992. I mean, I was little. So I heard this story secondhand much, much later, but I was alive for that. Which only added to the the shame that my family felt. My grandfather, his last job was as a night manager at a 7-Eleven. And he ended up having a stroke 
his first of many strokes on the job at the 7-Eleven. Now that I do remember. That was in 1993. And there is just a lot of sadness in my family about that story. You know, my mom thought she was doing right marrying a doctor. That didn't work out. You know, my grandfather wanted to start a political career. That didn't work out. And then that my grandfather had amassed all this wealth in Laos, but because of the war, they had to leave in the middle of the night. They didn't get to bring it with them. That didn't work out. So there was a lot of shame and pain in my family that came from that. And I always had immediate relatives and then some people in my extended family trying to put that extra burden on my shoulders. I I, I did have people in my family try to say to me, like, you need to redeem your, your grandfather's name or, you know, when you're older, you need to tell our story. And on top of that, we had the, you know, stereotypical Asian American mom pressure to work in the medical field or work in science and engineering. I mean, I, I de- I'll deal with that too. And I'm sure on some level, that's because my mom dropped out of med school and she really wished that someone in the family finally became a doctor. My, my older sister is a doctor. And I bring up this story today because I recognize several lessons from this story. First off, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the war. My family ended up in the United States because my grandfather was an informant for the CIA, which is crazy to think, but it is true. And the legacy of that war lives within me. My family had no choice but to survive when they came to America. So they buried that trauma deep down and did what it took to survive. I know that was not easy for them. And I extend so much compassion to the people that went through that. The first and the first generation and one and a half generation in my family. I fully understand that that was not easy and that that was hard. But at the same time, that that did have detrimental effects on my family's mental health. I uh, can't really say specifically who suffers from what because not a lot of people in my uh, Lao family seek mental health care. My mom ended up getting diagnosed with delusional disorder when I was 10, but that was because of a custody battle between my parents. It wasn't anything of my mom's own accord that she sought mental health care. And I now recognize a lot of the intergenerational trauma that arose from that. And I'm not the only one in the family that has had to deal with this. It, it, is, it is very pervasive within my family tree. But I want to view my life as a chance to break that legacy and turn that around. The only way to move forward sometimes is to look backward. We have to recognize where these painful experiences and memories come from. And in my case, it does come from war and heartbreak and guilt and shame that the older generations of my family faced. I hope somebody listening to this episode can find some sort of connection or meaning, especially anyone who's Asian American listening to this story. There's a lot of overlap in Southeast Asian American experiences I have found, especially uh, people whose families come from Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam, as well as Burma. 
or Myanmar, if you want to call it that. A lot of the Southeast Asian diaspora was fleeing pain. And when they got to their new countries, wherever they ended up, they were busy surviving. And a lot of Asian cultures in particular, you're taught not to rock the boat. You're taught about social cohesion. Uh, you know, Confucianism talks about that in China, but you know that's not the only example. And perseverance is a really important value in Asian cultures. But for those of us who are second or third generation Asian American, as well as those of us who are mixed race Asian American, you know, we're, we're going to break that, we're going to break that cycle. And the only way to break that cycle is to recognize our place within it. You have to recognize the cycles that started before you and that can continue after you unless you make the steps to stop it. And the only way to do that is to recognize the origin of some of our suffering. When you view your life that way, you will uncover some things that are dark and painful, but that also gives you a chance to purify your karma, to cleanse yourself of those experiences, and to heal your family lineage. If you wish to contact me directly or have your question featured in a future episode of the podcast, you can send me an email at tqrpodcast at gmail.com or find me on Instagram, tqrpodcast, or my personal Instagram, Ricky Dementia. That's R-I-K-I Dementia. Thank you for listening. With love and gratitude, signing off. <laughs>